God, thank you for meeting us here. Thank you, God, for your great love that you have for us. And we ask you this morning, God, that you just help us to have ears to hear. God, we know our world's broken. We know in a lot of ways we somehow play and contribute to that brokenness. And God, I ask you this morning that you would just help us to see above and beyond everything else just what you're doing in this world to undermine, to undo the works of evil and to bring about peace and wholeness and healing in this world. So God, we commit this time in your hands. We pray that, again, that you would meet us in ways that are just beyond information. God, that we would sense your presence here and sense your love and respond accordingly to who you are. So we commit this time in your hands, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been in a series, uh, really kind of beginning January 1, at the beginning of the year, on Sunday mornings, and we've been just simply calling it, connected with, I should say, the year of biblical literacy. And so, again, if you're new here, year of biblical literacy is basically two things. One, it's uh, through the year Bible reading program, uh, whereby we as a church community are reading through the entire Bible, Genesis Revelation, uh, by the time this year is done. And if you've been following along and doing that, right now you should be in the book of Numbers, which uh, is really, if, which means you made it past Leviticus. Congratulations. You are now in the book of Numbers, which in some ways is, is, is pretty tedious as well. But good job, because what you may have actually begun to discover in your own personal life is that you are learning new habits. There are new habits that you are developing in your life, so good job on that. And I've been saying this as well, that for some of you, you may have started and you have uh, not done very well or not done as well as you would like, and so you've missed a few weeks and whatnot. And again, I always say the same thing, is that don't, don't let that stop you or hinder you. Don't feel ashamed. There's nothing to be ashamed of. Um, so you can either just pick up right where you could be um, or just you know, figure out how to listen to it on audio and just you know, go do some yard work and listen to the Bible while you're doing an hour and a half of yard work, and before you know it, it's on double speed or time and a half, and you'll be done and caught up to wherever you need to be. So anyways, so again, Year of Biblical Literacy is number one, a Bible reading program. Number two is something that we do in community. But what we did at the beginning of the year is we basically said we wanted to basically spend some time um, helping you to understand how to read the Bible. So we spent four weeks, four or five weeks, uh, giving guys some practical lessons on how to read scripture, um, and what we did beginning last week is we entered into kind of a second phase or second series of this entire series. And so this will take us about another six or seven weeks or so to kind of complete this. And we've been looking at this second series just simply called The Story of God. And the big idea behind this is we've been wanting to kind of fly 30,000 feet above uh, sea level to look at the entire story of Scripture, like from Genesis all the way to Revelation, because we've been trying to point out that the entire Bible is actually one single storyline from Genesis to Revelation telling one story, which is kind of phenomenal when you think about this, because the Bible itself is actually not one book. It's 66 books. It's a library of books written by several authors over several hundred years, in some cases, you know, maybe a thousand or so years, on several different continents. This is what's shocking about this. And yet, even though written by multiple authors over many years, on different continents, there's one single storyline. Do you know what that storyline is? And that's what we've been trying to understand. It's like, what is that storyline? How does it make sense? So to do that, we've been, rather than focusing on one word or one theme or one concept or one passage or one book, we've been trying to fly above the entire thing to get a bigger overall vision and picture as to what's happening throughout this entire book. So that being said, what we looked at last week, again, a little bit of a just background, is we basically asked the question as to what the first introductory chapters of the Bible are all about. The chapters 1 and 2, we described it as basically being creation, that God's kingdom, the kingdom begins. And what we discovered is that, first of all, creation is something that God created to basically be a place that represents his glory. It's like a temple. It's a temple that houses his glory. But God did not create a temple that's empty or devoid of workers in that temple. God created human beings made in his likeness, which what we described last week is a way, is a way of dignifying humanity, saying human beings are called to be in partnership with God to steward the resources of planet Earth and to take care of one another, to create culture, to do all this amazing stuff on planet Earth that this planet that we live on is literally a gift that keeps on giving. 
Have you thought about it that way? I mean, that's what planet Earth is. It's a gift that keeps on giving. Think about how many things that you can create with just dirt, right? Think about how many things you can, I mean, for the most part, you can either just go out and create more chaos with dirt, or you can figure out ways to add dirt to lime and other types of ingredients, and you can create a brick. And with brick, you have multiple bricks, like we'll actually read about in the storyline today. You can create houses, and then you can create housing tracks, and you can tra create track homes, you can create cities, and all these things. Uh, or you can create an amazing garden. It's a gift that keeps on giving. And this is how God designed for this whole entire thing to be. But what we saw in chapters 1 and 2 is that it wasn't the end of the story. That though this creation was created good, it was also created with human beings at the center of this thing. To make a choice. To partnership with God. To say yes to God. To say yes, we will follow you. Or say no to God. This is one of the realities that we see in the introductory chapters of the Bible. So that brings us to this morning's message, which is the idea of fall, which is the big theological Bible, not necessarily the Bible word, but a theological term for this, to describe what chapter 3 onward uh, identifies, is what we would call the fall of mankind, or another way, or subtitle of it, you can think of this as the kingdom rebels. So whatever the original creation was that God designed to be good, and God says several times, it's good. There's one thing that's really interesting about the story, is that a lot of times Western Christians, we tend to think of creation being perfect. Have you ever thought of it that way? Creation's perfect. The Bible never says it was perfect. That's something we injected into the text. It says it was good. There's a vast difference between good versus perfect. When you think of perfect, you think of something that's complete, it's done, it needs nothing more, nothing needs to be added, nothing needs to be taken away. That's not how God designed chapters 1 and 2 to be. But he did say it was good, which means it, everything was there that was needed for it to flourish and function. But what we're introducing to chapter 3 is there's something in the story that's not all good. Or not all right, I should say. There's something happening behind the scenes that we're not re really necessarily knowledgeable of in what's taking place in that. So with that this morning, what I want to look at is kind of this bigger question. And the question basically goes along the lines of recognizing that something in this world is not right. I mean, all of us... At some point, we recognize, we know that our world is broken. It's messed up. It's broke. It's just beyond repair, as we would some ways kind of think about it as. Uh, it doesn't take a brain surgeon to realize, like, on the news, something's not right as we learn about the constant, ongoing disease of criminality and sinfulness and destruction and death and murders and people being gunned down in schools and more Me Too's arising and all forms of abuse than things like that that are happening constantly within our culture and society at large. But the question that we have to kind of think about is why? Why is it like this? That's the big question. So, for example, if someone were to come to you and ask you the question, why is society the way it is? Why is there so much brokenness and disease and ruin and children getting cancer when they're, you know, when they're children? Um, and, and why is there so much abuse that's happening in our world? Why are all these things taking place? How would you answer that? Like, what type of solutions or concepts or information would you give to help understand the, the problem of evil within this world? And what I would suggest to you is that throughout history, humanity has tried to develop means by which to address that question. I mean, that's basically what um, psychology has attempted to do. That's what uh, sociology has, has attempted to do. Even history, to some degree, has attempted to analyze the past as a way of looking at patterns and ways of trying to scrutinize and figure out ways to maybe move forward. It's what religion, for the most part, has done from either you know, westernized religion all the way even to eastern religion has attempted to ask the question, how do we address, how do we deal with the subject of evil? And I don't even go so far as to say that's what government has done. Government, in some ways, everybody throughout history has attempted to have some form of contribution to the dialogue to address the issue of what's wrong with this world. What I would suggest to you is that throughout history, there are multiple narratives that are trying to address, to give an answer. So I'll give you a couple other ways of thinking about this. Do you, do you know that Marxism was an attempt to address evil? So you can read Marxist literature and realize Marx had an idea as to what evil was and how do we address evil societally. Do you know that Hitler had an idea of what evil was 
Now, his idea of evil may be vastly different than what you might describe as evil, but he had an idea of what evil was. And he had a solution. He even called it the solution as to what evil was. And he sought to enact that, to bring that about. The point that I'd make is this, and even throughout religions, uh, various variety of religions have attempted to address Do you realize that that's what, uh, even within our culture and our society at large in terms of government has attempted? Do you realize that uh, Democrats and left-leaning people and progressive, they have a narrative that says, this is what's wrong with society, this is what's evil, and this is the way forward. Do you even realize that the right-leaning people that are you know, on the other side of the entire spectrum, Republicans and conservatives, they have a way of identifying what is wrong with society, what's evil in society, and here's how we address it. And what you'll discover is that every single one of these people, they have a narrative. It's an attempt to address what's wrong with society, what's wrong with humanity, and how do we move forward. What I'd like to suggest to you is the Bible also contributes to that dialogue. <laughs> in fact, I would even go so far as to say that Christianity has, in my opinion, what we'll read hopefully today is one of the most enthusiastic, one of the most amazingly comprehensive ways to address to analyze, to critique, and to ultimately provide solutions as to a way forward. Putting its finger, not just simply upon evil, but what is beneath evil. So what we might describe is that we can identify what's the fruit of evil. But how often do we ever look at the root of evil? What causes the fruit? In other words, we spend a lot of time looking at the symptoms, but do we understand what the real root of evil is and why that's at play underneath and what's causing or what's contributing to that type of posture or mentality within society at large? That's what scripture actually does. And so with that being said, I'm going to jump now into the story. We'll basically take a look at chapter 3 all the way to around chapter 11. And I want to just basically lay it out. We'll look at three main things, and we'll go through all of chapter 3, and we'll handful of other passages uh, all the way to chapter 11. So we'll take a look at, number one, the anatomy of sin. In other words, how do we identify sin, what that looks like? The second thing we'll take a look at, death by sin, is what are the consequences of sin? Obviously, death. And then thirdly, we'll take a look at death of sin. In other words, what God is up to in this world to address sin and rebellion in order to replace sin and the consequences of sin, which is death, with something other than, i.e., life. So what is up to in the text here? So let's first of all jump in and take a look at the anatomy of sin. To do that, I want to jump in by reading the story. So Genesis chapter 2, if you want to turn there, Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. I mentioned this to you guys a few weeks ago that I actually won't have the scriptures up on screen, so it's important to have a Bible today. You can look at a friend of yours next to you, or again, we do have some more on the back if you need one. So I'm going to begin by reading Genesis chapter 2, the very last verse of chapter 22 as it kind of segues into chapter 3. It just simply tells us this little bit of information about Adam and Eve. It says, and man... Adam, and his wife, Isha, that's his name in Hebrew, uh, they were both naked, and they were both not ashamed. So I just want you to pause and think about this. So whatever the state or status that humanity was in, uh, here they are in this Edenic state, Eden, right, this garden. Here's God and Adam and Eve. They're together side by side or in front of each other. Both of them, this little detail that the text gives us, they're both naked, and yet the typical reaction that oftentimes follows nakedness. So right now, don't think too heavily on this, but if right now, if every one of you had all your clothes gone, you're naked, what would we do? We'd be in a panic, right? We would be in a quick rush to somehow cover ourselves because we cannot stand living in a room of nakedness without being ashamed. Genesis 2, last verse here, tells us something radically different. They're both naked, but not ashamed. Read on the story. So just put that mental note in the back of your mind because it plays as a theme into what we're going to continue to read today. Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 says this, And now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, if you're paying attention, immediately you're kind of like, wait, what? Wait, we just went from Adam and Eve, both naked, unashamed. Now we're talking about a serpent. Like, wait, how do we get here? Like, right now, if you're paying attention, there's a handful of questions that might come to your mind. Like, for example, where did the serpent come from? Uh, why was the serpent kind of cunning or deceptive, crafty, some of your translations might say? Um, how in the world did this serpent become so corrupted or critical or 
casting doubt or suspicion upon God. Um, we also notice that in the storyline that the serpent is actually talking with Eve, which is, again, like, wait, a talking serpent? And what's even more shocking, like, Eve's actually talking, having dialogue with the serpent. So there's a lot of questions that might play in the text right now. So uh, withhold maybe some super critical thinking of this, but just listen to the story. I like to think of it this way, that Genesis, uh, for the most part, is a story that kind of picks up with a whole backstory that we don't know about, which brings me to Star Wars which, when you watch the very first episode, like the very first one that came on, like what, back in 1977, whenever that was, that came out, and all of a sudden, onto the stage or the scene is, is Darth Vader, this you know, guy dressed in black, he's breathing heavy, and there's all these questions that kind of play in your mind, like, wait, wait, who is this, and where did he come from, and where is he going, why is he breathing so heavy, and he seems kind of mechanical. What's the backstory to that? And how does he play into this whole story? Which there's all these, all these questions. You have no clue. You have to keep watching. And as you watch, you begin to recognize that, oh, there's, this is a very complex character with a whole backstory that we are not given initially. This is just like Genesis chapter 3. There's a whole backstory that we just simply do not know. And we're just simply introduced. So imagine Darth Vader coming on the scene in the form of a serpent, and all of a sudden the serpent comes on the scene, begins to talk with Eve and Adam in the garden, and again, don't, don't think too much about this, but just let the story take you where the story intends to take you. So there you go. Um, as we continue to read, it says this in verse 2. It says, And he said to the woman, Did God actually say to you, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden. But God then said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So this is a reference to chapter 2, where God puts Adam and Eve in the center of this garden. Again, he says, and he makes his declaration, all is good. But you got a choice. you got to obey me, trust me. There's one tree in the midst of the garden. Again, there's all these questions that you might have, like why did God put this tree in the middle of the garden? And why did God put these prohibitions upon this tree? And uh, again, withhold judgment. Just read the story. Listen to the story. Let it take you where it wants to go. Um, you know, why, why is all this type of stuff happening? But in the story, God just simply says, don't, don't eat of the tree that's in the midst of this garden. And then as this dialogue is happening between the serpent, which later we would kind of come to identify as as Satan, but again, he's not identified as Satan in the story here right now. We're just told that he's a serpent, and uh, he's obviously a corrupted serpent. He's obviously a, a serpent that has distrust over God, and his aim is to di cause distrust and doubt um, and use influence over Adam and Eve to get them to disobey God. So with that in the particular story, uh, he is doing just that. And then it goes on to say that Eve says, neither shall we touch it, which is actually an addition. God never said don't touch it, he just said don't eat it. So there's a little bit of an addition thing that's going on here. And verse 4, it says, but then the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will become like God, knowing good from evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and so then also gave to her husband, who was also with her, and he ate. So a lot of questions, again, that might naturally arise in your mind, like what in the world, at least for me, like what in the world is Adam doing? So I think oftentimes we can tend to think like Adam is like in another you know, part of the garden hanging out. Nope, Adam is actually right there, listening to the dialogue, doing nothing. So I, I think the reality is like this, for whatever reason, Adam is not functioning as a cultivator as he should. He's not protecting his, his wife. He's not doing what he ought to be doing. So whatever reason, he's listening to dialogue, and his great action here is really non-action. For whatever reason, he does nothing, and ultimately Eve eats the fruit and then gives it to him, and he also eats of it as well. So with that, there's basically three questions, I think, that Satan exercises to get Eve to bite into this fruit, whatever it is. Again, a lot of times people get hung up on what kind of fruit it was. It really doesn't matter. It does not matter. And no matter what type of art that's been done, it's totally non-relevant to the story. But the point of the matter is, is that whatever this fruit was, God says, do not do it. He presents his choice to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve disregard the obedience towards God and saying yes towards God. And they take matters into their own hands and do what God said not to do. 
So with that, we see Adam, uh, where Adam and Eve were both basically tempted by Satan, this serpent, by three ways. Number one, Satan comes along and he begins to tempt Adam or tempt Eve by way of questioning God's word. So the very first thing, he says, did God really say? Are you, can you be certain that this is really God? How do you know this is really God? And it's one of the ways in which Satan still continues to question and trip people up today is how do you really know it's the Bible? How do you really know the Bible can be trusted? How do you really know God's word? Are you really sure about that? It's been translated like 10,000 times. How do you even know that that translation can even be accurate? So there's all these ways to cast doubt upon our minds so that we can then disregard what Scripture seems to be saying to go do our own thing. The second way in which he does this is he calls question to God's love, or another way I think of this is God's trustworthiness. So take a look at it again in verse 3 and 4. He says this, But God said, You shall not eat of the tree of the garden that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. In verse 4 he says, But then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. So this is like a straight-up affront to God and what God said. The serpent basically comes right out and says, No, you're not going to die. That's not at all what's going to happen. And then he goes on to say, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So the big compromise that's going on here right now is Satan is basically saying, Look, do you realize that God is actually withholding something from you? The very thing that you, that you look at and you find desirable. The reason why God said no to that is because his love is called into question. God's desire is really not for you. God has uh, dubious desires that, that are not for your good, not for your benefit, not for your blessing. God actually is something other than good. So therefore you cannot trust him. That's one of the ways in which Satan oftentimes works in our minds. It's one of the reasons why oftentimes we fall into temptations. We allow temptation to oversweep us. It's because as we're wrestling through certain things in our minds, we think, well, maybe the reason why God has not given me this job or given me this relationship or given me this spouse or allowed me to have this raise or whatever it is, whatever you fill in the blank, is because I'm not certain that he actually loves me. And if he doesn't love me, then he really can't be trusted. Why would I be in partnership or covenant or relationship with this, this, this being, this entity that is really not fully trustworthy? And it's how the enemy works. Which then raises the question, who can I trust? Who can I put my confidence in? Which kind of leads me to the, really, the last point in which the enemy basically attacks or creates this temptation is really this bigger question of the source of good and evil. Like where does the source of good and evil actually come from? And this is where the enemy basically says, he reconstructs, and reconstructs a narrative and says, really, God is withholding something from you that he knows that if you engage in it, you will then learn good and evil yourself. So this kind of raises the question, like, like what's going on here? What's happening? Talking serpents, you know, human beings talking to a serpent, um, talking about good and evil. Like, what's happening here? Now, this brings it back to this bigger question that it would appear that in the midst of the garden, in this good Eden state, God says, look, the way that I want to have relationship with you is I want to be in such close proximity and close relationship with you that you come to me and I will show you what's right and what's, what's wrong. I will guide you. I'm like a father and I love you and I've given you Everything that's pleasurable and everything that's good. And Adam, you have Eve, your wife, and you can enjoy this incredible relationship sexually. You're both naked and you're both unashamed. You are completely 100% transparent before each other. Neither one of you have anything to hide. Everything is good. But Adam and Eve now are questioning the goodness of God. How do we really know if God's good? Do we even, can we even trust this God? Who are we going to really trust? Maybe God really is withholding something from us that really is good for us. And so therefore, maybe I need to explore and play this scenario out, play this narrative out, kind of enter into this whole thing. Maybe I need to be the one to kind of spend more time developing and thinking through critically what is right and what is wrong. And so here's the thing I would suggest. In our culture, in our society, if we reject the authority of God, 
if we turn away from that because for whatever reason we distrust it, we don't think it's reliable, we don't think it's accurate, at some point we will then go through this process of now we have to determine what is right and what's wrong. So none of us can function without some sense of what's right and what's wrong. We will all develop another system to discern rightness and wrongness. But see, here's the thing that I, I would suggest. Now, modern culture, modern society says, look, everyone can kind of decide for themselves what's right and what's wrong. What's, what's right for you might not be what's right for somebody else. So it's kind of this subjective feeling. But the reality is there's so many contradictions with regard to that. Because let's say, for example, uh, in a, I don't know, you, you go buy a house. And you're like, what's right for me is to buy this thing for like 50 bucks. And the owner's like, no, what's right for me is to sell this thing for like 759000 Like, that's what's right. Like, I, you know, your right does not sync with my right. And so, again, but the fact of the matter is there, there are objective realities that we have to abide by and recognize. And it also plays in the relational concepts. So if you have a marriage, you know, that are committed to each other by way of love, and they make this covenant to one another, that there, there are these realities. So you can't just somehow begin to start bending these things. But here's what I suggest, that in our, in our world, we cannot live without some sense of rightness or wrongness. We cannot live like that. But what often happens is the way that we work is we have a pretty good understanding as to what's right and what's wrong for us. But if we do something that's wrong towards others, we're always asking, hey, can you show some kindness and mercy? So, like, for example, you get, you're driving down the street and some guy cuts you off. In your mind, you're like, I want justice. I want that guy to either crash or I want somebody to arrest him because what they did was wrong. It was injustice against me. Let's say, for example, as you're driving down the road, you cut somebody off and they're honking at you and they want you to die and you're like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Please show me grace and kindness. So what happens is we want to have grace and kindness shown to us when we violate some sense of rightness and wrong, but when somebody violates our sense of right and wrong, we want the you know, death penalty. I'm going to write someone off. I'm going to blot their name out of the book of life, you know? But the point I would make is this, is that on a cosmic level, I mean, like society-wide, like where do we go to get a sense of rightness and wrongness? I, I like to think of it this way, that society at large is filled with hundreds, hundreds, and hundreds of narratives to define, to describe what's right and what's wrong. And us as human beings, like for you, the way that you think about what's right or what's wrong, how do you know what... Your understanding, your grid, your matrix for discerning what's right and what's wrong is, is the right way. And I often even like to think of it this way even further, that none of us are the sole authors of what's right and what's wrong in our own lives. Uh, meaning, you're, no human being writes their own rightness and wrong, you know, data information alone. There's always a ghostwriter behind the scenes helping you write this thing. And his name's the serpent. Because there's always this alternate narrative going on behind the scenes saying, well, what about this? What about God? Do you think you can really trust God? Can you, do you really think you can put your confidence in God? Do you really think you can trust the Bible? Because the Bible is like a 2,000 or 3,500-year-old 3, book that's outdated. It doesn't work in today's culture, and we know this. And there's all these doubts that are oftentimes cast. So we end up becoming the one that's kind of writing with a ghost author, this narrative of rightness and wrongness. Let me give an example of how this kind of has played out recently in modern ways. So one of the big obvious analogies of this is, like, for example, human sexuality. And within the past 50 or so years plus, uh, uh, Western civilization has been in sort of this gridlock over the subject of sexuality. Like, who gets to decide? Who gets to define what's right and what's wrong with regard to the subject of sexuality? So what we know, for example, throughout History, thousands of years, especially of communities of people that have adhered to scripture, whether it be Jewish as predecessors of Christianity or past 2,000 years of, within the context of Christianity, that there has been this notion, this idea that sexuality is to be something that's uh, to, is glorious, is something to be enjoyed and experienced solely within the context between one man and one woman in the context and the bind and the bond of, of marriage, covenantal marriage and fidelity and relationship. 
And it's this, this expression of sexuality that God looks at and says, this is, this is good. And any other expression beyond that, whether it be even heterosexual, um, you know, messing around, or homosexual messing around, any form of that outside of heterosexual, one male, one female relationship within marriage was viewed as something that was distortion, a distortion upon what God had originally desired. That has been the main narrative for the past 35 plus 100 years. And within the past 50 or so years, there's been another narrative that's become very, very loud and very, very constant within our culture and society. So, for example, back in the 60s, there was this movement of free love, uh, Woodstock, hippie generation, uh, modern-day sexual revolution. In a lot of ways, sociologists would identify that one of the reasons why this became so loud and strong was because in some ways it was a, it was a reaction against the, uh, the hardening, I would describe, of Christian institutions within America that were basically casting a false narrative of what Scripture describes as marriage, husband and wife that what was happening within even Christianity in America was casting this vision that men had this dominant role in the family and their main job was to become the breadwinner and the women's job was to just, it was basically casting a vision of oppression over women and subjugation of women, which is, is not at all the vision of Scripture. It's a distortion of Scripture. And somewhere along the line, Christian institutions had hijacked the biblical uh, image of glorious relationship between a male and a female and has distorted it into something horrific. And I think the 60s was this reaction to say, no, 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 what we need is a revolution. We need every human being, on, at least in the West, to be liberated sexually, to be able to explore and express our sexuality in ways in which we want it, not by being bound by religion or bound by the predominant uh, voice that's been in America for the past 50 to 100 or so years, which is sort of this, uh, I don't know, hangover from Puritanism. And we need, we need to explore brand new ways of exerting our sexuality. And so throughout the 60s, we see this exploration of this. Throughout the 70s and 80s, we see the media <coughs> taking a very dominant role and putting forth all sorts of new mediums and uh, sitcoms and shows and characters and casting them to, uh, with an attempt to normalize uh, sexuality outside of monogamous uh, uh, marriage of male and female in all sorts of new ways to normalize this particular behavior. And ultimately, throughout the 90s and the 2000s, we see, even within our culture at large, what, uh, what has basically happened within the court of laws is same-sex marriage became sort of the, lo the law of the land. And not only in the court of laws, but also within the court of public opinion. So for the most part, in American society at large today, there is an overwhelming, the majority of human beings in America would look at homosexual activity or any other type of activity that's beyond heterosexual and say, it's, it's all good. It's all normal. And what I would suggest is that now the tables have been turned to some degree, that those that would look at God's idea, God's design, God's portrayal of a male and a female coming together in loving union, sexual union within the bonds of marriage, that that is a view that's been viewed as bigoted. Now again, I would suggest that a lot of times Christians have not done a good job at promoting God's ordeal, God's picture, God's design of what marriage and what covenantal fidelity and sexuality should look like, because in some ways, a lot of Christians have not been very polite or kind, or their posture has been horrific in the way that they have mistreated and been unjust towards anybody and everybody that does not have the exact same view as them. It's one of the reasons why I would say this very clearly, that if you are part of this church community, or you're attending, you're coming, and you have a sexual perspective that has been shaped by society or culture at large, or you are somebody that's in a realm of confusion, uh, we are so happy you're here. Our hope is that no matter who you are, no matter how you have viewed or misviewed even sexuality or any other form, whether heterosexual or homosexual, whatever the case is, we're glad you're here. Welcome to the table. This table that we would call the communion of God's people is for anybody and everybody. The aim, the big aim, is that we would adopt a posture and understand what God's original idea and view for all of these things are. And not turn away from it, not shy away from it, not be apologetic as a result of it, but to recognize that whatever God has to say in the context, especially even of sexuality, that it was God's perspective that leads to life. And here's my big point that I don't want us to miss. 
is that every one of us, there are alternate narratives that are trying to distort what God's original design was. Just like the serpent coming to say, did God really say this? How can you really be certain that this is what God says? Is it very possible that what God did say is actually an attempt to withhold something that's good from you because God can't be really trusted? And at the end of the day, how do you really even know what's right or what's wrong? And what I would suggest is that Scripture constantly brings us back into the storyline that says God can't be trusted. What God says about all things, not just sexuality, but life and how to treat my neighbor and how to show kindness and forgiveness towards people that have hurt me and wounded me and how to think about the immigrant and how to think about people that are outsiders and people that are on the other side of the wall and how to think about all people. There's another framework that's not necessarily uh, controlled by the left or by the right or by any other type of political viewpoint, but that is fed by the very words of God himself that lead to life that leads to seeing humanity in an entirely different way. So what I want to really cast off in terms of an understanding of all this particular picture is that the anatomy of sin really is this attempt to try to get us to follow our desires towards something that's beyond what God has actually said, hey, this is what will lead to life. Let me give an example of how the book of James puts it this way. James, he says this, each person is tempted when they are lured and enticed by their own desires. There's no doubt in my mind that James is thinking about this initial storyline in the Bible, where he's Eve in the garden. She's tempted. She's looking at the fruit. She's like, that looks really good. But then the enemy is there giving a counter-narrative saying, well, why not just take it? Well, God said. Well, did God really say that? Well, God said X, Y, Z. Well, are you sure that this is what God's, I mean, maybe God's actually withholding something from you. And what's happening now is this counter-narrative is beginning to lessen her ability to trust God. And it goes on to say in verse 15, then the desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it's fully developed gives birth or becomes death. Death becomes the ultimate end of all this thing. So with that, I want you to think about this. This is the anatomy of sin. C.S. Lewis would ultimately put it this way, the idea of rightness and wrongness. He says this, my argument against God, he was an atheist at one point, was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how did, it, how did I get this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he first has some idea of what is straight. What was I comparing the universe to when I called it unjust? Really what C.S. Lewis is describing is that all of us, we have this sense of understanding. Like There's some sense of rightness and wrongness. So we all know if a four-year-old child is molested, I don't care who you are, that's wrong. Someone needs to be held accountable to that. We don't play around with that. We don't look at that and be like, well, maybe in some cases it's not. Every single one of us, unless there's some serious distortions. But here's my point, is that there's, this, there's these universals. And what C.S. Lewis is saying is that there is something in each one of us, a sense of justice, of rightness, of wrongness, as a result of understanding what rightness is. And what I'm suggesting is that this is exactly what the crafty serpent did back then and continues to do today. Can you really trust God? Are you even really sure that's what God says? Maybe God meant somebody else and submit something else. Maybe for 4,000 years, all of these people that have followed God were wrong. Maybe the past 50 years, we've shed so much light upon this subject matter, we know that we hold the high ground, the moral high ground, over all of these other previous centuries and millennia to come into another conclusion that's more right for society at large. So what I've suggested is this, the anatomy of sin is very clear within the passage here. The second thing we see is death by sin. So in other words, sin brings about consequences. To say no to God, to walk from God, to turn away from God, to attempt to emancipate ourselves from God is not, I would say to, to walk away from God holds these promises. Again, the narrative that says, hey, if you walk away from God, life is better out there. But we have to understand, there is no life out there. If, if God himself is life, to remove ourselves from life is not to enter into another form of life. It's actually to walk into death. If God, who is light, wisdom, is the source of light and wisdom, 
if we look at God and say, I don't want God, I want to remove myself from God, I'm going to step away from God, step into something that makes more wisdom, more sense, is not to step into greater wisdom or an alternate wisdom, is actually to walk away from wisdom into folly. To look at God who is love and to say, I don't want that type of love that God gives because I want a different form of love is not walk into another alternate form of love. It's actually to walk into alienation whereby we feel even more lost and alone in this world. I would suggest that is the world we live in today. Where no matter how much more connected we are today than ever before, than any other generation throughout history, we are more alone and lost and afraid than ever before. So, what happens in sin? So we see a couple things. Number one, we see the woman has these consequences, both man, women, and then on a general universal sense, there's these consequences that befall them. Number one, we see the woman in verse 16. We're told that she has pain through childbearing. So obviously, bearing children will become a tough labor of love, pun intended. Second thing we see in verse 16, uh, that she will ultimately attempt to find fulfillment in relationships. I'll just read this in verse 16 so you can follow along. It says this. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for the man, for your husband, and he shall rule over you. There's a lot of different variances of translations in this, but some would basically point out the big main idea is this, that she will try to find some level of fulfillment in her connection and relationship to man, but will always come up shortchanged. In other words, she will look at her husband and think, maybe the fulfillment of my life will be found in him. And what she will come up with over and over again is this reality that he is constantly failing me. I'm going to 27 years of marriage this year, which has been amazing. Yeah, it's good. Cool, thank you. Um, and honestly, I would say I have, a, I have a really great marriage with my wife. Like, we obviously, like all marriages, have bumps, and we argue, and we have disagreements, and sometimes big disagreements that have been very heated and overblown, and we work through those things, and we say I'm sorry, and we go on. But the reality is, is that one of the things that we have recognized throughout the years is that if my wife looks at me as somehow the means to satisfy and fulfill her deepest desires. If I look at her to be the means to satisfy my deepest desires, not only will we will both constantly fail each other, but we will also be putting each other in this constant place where they're, we're putting a burden upon them that they will never and can never possibly bear. We will crush them with, we will crush each other with our expectations. So let me say, for example, if I were to come to my wife and be like, I want you to be my sole source of happiness and joy and fulfillment and everything, at some point my wife will attempt, because my wife wants to please, she wants, she wants to satisfy people, be kind to people, and do everything she can to benefit and bless them. At some point she will fail like, feel like a failure, and she will be crushed underneath the weightiness of my expectations. And this happens all the time in life. And what's happening is these are consequences that human beings will look at someone else to be the means of which they will find ultimate fulfillment and meaning in life, and yet at some point it will never be enough. Man, we see next in verses 17 and 19, we're told that he will ultimately find, attempt to find fulfillment in his work, and ultimately through it will come up short every single time. So again, listen to verse 17 to 18. It says, And Adam, then God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and you have eaten of the fruit of which I commanded you not to eat, uh, cursed is the ground because of you, and in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth from you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread. In other words, this is a way of saying, like, bread will come, but it will come at an extreme cost extreme labor, it will be painful, you will go out and you will try to cultivate the field, but it will be extremely laborious, extremely painful for you to do your work. And he goes on to say, until uh, in, you will return to the ground, from out of it you are taken, and for from it you are dust, and to dust you shall also then return. This is kind of a really interesting reversal, because on the one hand, when God created Adam and Eve, created Adam and Eve where? From, or Adam, from dust. And then God tells Adam, I want you to have rulership and leadership over all creation, over the dust of the ground. So originally, when God created all things that were good, he says, Adam, you are to have dominion over the very ground itself. 
Now think about that, the types of things you can create with, with dirt. But what we then go on to see is that because of this brokenness and this dysfunctionality that ends up happening, the sinfulness, the rebellion that takes place, the ground will ultimately get the last word. So rather than Adam exercising dominion over the ground, the ground will exercise dominion over Adam, what we would call death. Finally, we see in verses 22 to 24, I'll just read this, it says this. Um, then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good from evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand to take also the tree of life and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out man. At the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim, which is, a, again, we, we have no idea. This is the first time we're introduced to whatever a cherubim is, a big angel. So, again, this question is like, when did the cherubim get created? We have no idea, because the story's not about cherubim, all right? The story's not about cherubim. So, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff in the Bible. Like, you can spend hours doing research on, like, who the cherubim are. It's not about cherubim. The, the cherubim are just support roles, right? It's like, spending all your time, like, asking questions, like, let's, let's figure out who Jar Jar Binks is. It's worthless. Don't, there's no need. He's a worthless character in a discussion. So the point of the matter is, is God then says in verse 24, he drove the man out east of the garden and he places a cherubim with a flaming sword and he turned on to guard the way from the tree of life. The big word that I want you to take away from here is the word exile. Adam and Eve run off in exile. Here they are on the planet that God says this is home. But you will always feel as if it's not home. Have you ever felt that? Isn't that what broken relationships are? You can be in a family, people that you know closely, they might even be blood, but if there's relational strain, meaning if they sinned against you or you sinned against them or you did something that was offensive to them and it's not resolved, you can be at home but not feel like you're at home. Does that make sense? The word for that is exile. And this is what God says. In this planet that I created for you, you will be forever in exile until something happens, until I recreate, until I enter in and do something profound to make it home. And this is what sin does. Sin brings death and exile to relationships. It brings death and exile to God, between us and God. It brings death and exile to our relationship to society and culture at large. And it also ultimately brings death and exile to our relationship even to ourselves, where we constantly even feel in conflict with ourselves. That's exactly what Romans chapter 7 is all about. Paul's like, look, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Paul's literally like in this wrestling match with himself. He's like, I want to do right, but I don't do right. There's things that I want to do, but I don't do. What's going on here? Paul is basically saying, even in my own flesh, I feel like I'm in exile. And here's the big point that I think that these opening chapters are pointing out to us is that sin brings about death and exile. To kind of further go on into this, I want to just kind of wrap it up with some other passages and I'll be done. So life that's east of Eden, if we were to jump into Genesis chapter 4, I'll be very quick through these. Uh, we see the introduction of the, a couple other characters, Cain and Abel, if you're familiar with their story, you know that uh, uh, Cain ends up uh, killing Abel, his brother, and into the storyline, we see the introduction of jealousy, of anger, of violence, murder. Again, this kind of uh, development of psychological homelessness. In other words, even uh, Cain goes on, and he's like, like I'm going to constantly feel like people are going to be out to kill me. And God's like, don't worry about that. I'll take care of you. What was that feeling? It's a feeling of like total paranoia because that's what exile is. It's like, I don't know who's on my side. I don't know who I can trust. I'm... I feel very alone in this world. That's what consequences of sin does. Genesis chapter uh, 4, the latter part of that, there's in, uh, a guy by the name of Lamech that's introduced to the story. And in the story, we're told that Lamech takes two wives for himself. So this is the introduction of polygamy. Uh, this is not something that God designed, by the way. So anytime you have you know, your skeptic uh, friend or drunk uncle at Thanksgiving saying you can't believe the Bible because it talks about polygamy. It actually doesn't. I mean, it does talk about polygamy. Don't get me wrong. It absolutely talks about polygamy. But it does not talk about polygamy as like this is God's design. 
Remember, this is just a story. It's putting forth every gritty, nasty, messy detail of humanity at the forefront, just saying this, this is what happens. This is what happens when we say no to God. We are left to a world of vice and brokenness, dysfunctionality and mess, misogyny and all these other things. Lamech becomes this violent guy. He writes a song about his violence. Uh, Genesis chapter 5, we're introduced to what we would describe as this genealogy. I want you to uh, take a look at this real quickly. Uh, the genealogy. Genealogy is your, your favorite chapters to read, right? Um, at the end of uh, chapter uh, 5, verse 5, it says this. Thus all the days of Adam uh, he lived. They were 930 years. And then it says, and he died. Uh, later on, verse 8, it says, thus all the days of Seth, they were 912. And then he died. Later on, verse 11, and all the days of Enosh were 905, and then he died. And later on again, verse 14, then all the days of Kenan were 910, and then he died. And it goes on like in a cycle almost eight times over and over and over again. There's this constant repeat, recycle of, and, and they died. And your big takeaway of chapter 5 is humanity is plagued by something. So the question, if I were to stop at the end of chapter 5 and ask, okay, what's reigning on the earth? Humanity as dignified image bearers of God? Exercising control over all things, making good and beauty upon planet Earth. That's not what's reigning. What's reigning is death. Over and over and over again. What's reigning in society and culture at large today in our world? Same. Death. Over. It's a cycle of death. Genesis chapter 6 through 10, we're introduced to uh, a really hopeful character. His name's Noah. I'm sure you're familiar with him. Noah's this interesting character. It says uh, about verse 5 of chapter 6, it says, And the Lord saw the wickedness of man that was so great upon the earth that every intention of his thoughts, of his hearts, was only evil continuously. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and then it grieved him to his heart. Some translations say, and it broke his heart. So God's looking at humanity as it progresses and grows, and God says, Every thought and intent of a human's heart is to turn away from me. Death is consistently, continually reigning. And then it says, the introduction of verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Later on down about verse 22, it says, and Noah did this, and all he did uh, that God had commanded him. So you're looking at this story so far, and you're like, oh man, maybe this is hopeful. Maybe the humanity is making a hopeful turn towards this guy Noah. And then you're familiar with the story of the flood, and again, I'm not going to get into all the details of that, but at the end of the flood, I want to fast forward to that, the end of chapter 10, we're told that Noah gets off of the boat and then Noah plants this massive vineyard and God before that, you know, reaffirms his covenant with Noah. He's like, I'm going to reaffirm my covenant with you and with your people and Noah's all excited about this. He gets off the boat. We're told uh, at the end of chapter 10 that Noah builds or makes this incredible vineyard and in the midst of making this vineyard at some point, Noah, something happens. Noah gets totally drunk, gets drunk and something happens in his tent. He's naked. And he's drunk and naked. And his sons come in there. And a couple of his sons, they show dignity. They cover him up. But one of the sons, one of the sons, we don't know exactly what's happened because it's ambiguous in the text. But something happens in the tent between one of Noah's sons and Noah being naked that leaves you at the end of the story with these two words. Naked and shamed. Takes you back to chapter 2, the end of verse and then into the story of where Adam and Eve are in this cycle of being naked and ashamed. And I would suggest that's where society is today, naked and ashamed. Why do we do the things we do? Why do we, why do we project our best face forward on Instagram and Snapchat and Facebook and all these other forms of social media? Why do we buy the clothes that we wear? Why do we listen to the music we listen to? I uh, just watched a video I'd highly recommend. But just know, it's, it may shock you, it's called Liberated, it's on Netflix, it's all about the, the fulfillment, the fruit of the sexual revolution, and in it, they go into great detail, They'll just let you, let you know, it all takes place during spring break in Panama City, Florida. Thousands, thousands, tens of thousands of students just doing nothing but getting drunk and having sex over and over and over again, and they have interviews with the people, and the whole big takeaway is... A lot of times, dudes are just having sex because it's a way of being accepted by their peers. Women, girls, are having sex because it's a way of being recognized and accepted in the community. Why do we buy the clothes that we wear? 
Sometimes the clothes that we buy, it's not just simply putting on some sort of new clothing. It's a way of reformatting our fig leaves because we don't like the nakedness we feel. Naked and ashamed. Which leads me, finally, to the last point, which is the death of sin. Genesis chapter 3, verse 9 through 15 is this incredible promise that God makes to Adam and Eve. He says, but the Lord then called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. Adam says, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. That phrase, when God says, where are you? How you hear God say that is actually going to be shaped by how you think about God. So let me, let me put it this way. If you think of God as this angry, vengeful, violent, mad dictator that's out to just destroy your life and ruin your life by way of throwing down all sorts of prohibitions, then you will hear God with a sense of anger in his voice. Where are you, Adam? You know, like an echo. Where are you? But if you allow Jesus, for example, to shape how you understand God as a father, when Jesus says, when you pray to him, say, our father, then you will hear God's where are you in the context of a heartbroken father and not that of an arresting police officer. Adam, where are you? Where have you gone? Why is God asking Adam, where have you gone? Doesn't, doesn't God know? Of course God knows. So why is God asking Adam? It's an invitation for Adam to come to truth. So here's what's happened. God doesn't need to know. God already knows. God's not asking for his information. So here's, here's the big thing to just consider and think about this. There's nothing you do, nothing any of you have ever done, whether in the past 24 hours, or the past week, or the past six months, or the past six years, nothing you have ever done that's like hidden from God. God knows and sees everything. That should, to some degree, unsettle us, Right? But on the other hand, if you understand God as Father, then you understand that when he calls, where are you? It's actually a call for us to engage and say, God, I, I ran from you. Why'd you run from me? I ran from you because I did something I know I shouldn't. So what you see is this incredible picture, not of man seeking God. You see God seeking man. It's amazing, this image. And he goes on. God then goes on to say, and he said to him, who told you that you were naked? He says, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you? And the man said, the woman. And he passes the buck, of course. You know the whole story. And then the woman he goes to, and the woman says, no, it wasn't me. It was the, it was the serpent. And then God turns to the serpent, and here's what he says in verse uh, 15. He says, and the Lord God said to the serpent, because, verse 14, because you have done this, you will be cursed above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, and your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your, he, your head and um, you shall bruise his heel. And this is what scholars like to describe as what's called the proto-evangelion. So next time you're at a party and you want to impress all your friends, just throw down that word proto-evangelion. Um, all it simply means is that this is the preaching of the gospel in the Old Testament. This is God's way of saying, I am making a provision for your sin that through the seed of the woman, at some point there will come somebody that will arise Somebody that will come above, stand tall, and he will obey. He will walk in obedience. But in relation to the serpent, his heel will be bruised, but he will also crush the head of the serpent. Obviously, as Christians, followers of Jesus, we believe this to be Christ. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. I'll finish with this verse, and I'm done. Genesis chapter 3, 21 says this, And the Lord then, Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. Listen again. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. Now, again, in the ancient world, we are kind of explored that a little bit, but in the ancient world, if you really wanted to bring about one of the greatest forms of shaming upon another person, is you strip them of their clothes. It's what happened to Jesus on the cross. So, so the whole image of Jesus in a loincloth, scratch that. It's not accurate. It's not historically accurate. It's what people did to kind of bring some level of dignity to a crucified Messiah. They would, you know, in sculptures and artwork, they would put a loincloth on him. But Jesus would have been totally naked. This was, a, this was not just simply putting Jesus to death. This is about ultimately putting him to open shame. So if you wanted to bring ultimate shame upon somebody, you would strip him naked. This actually happens today in modern cultures. 
You strip them of their clothes. It's a way of not only stripping them of their clothes, it's stripping them of their dignity. It's reducing them to nothing more than subhuman status. Listen to what God says. And he does. He comes to them and he says, I will clothe you. This is God taking a major step to say, I will bring back the dignity that sin has stripped you of. That your rebellion, you're turning from me, you're turning to an alternate narrative, has left you feeling naked and unashamed. This is my giant leap towards undoing that and clothing you in satisfactory garments. Why? This is God's love. This is why the gospel is such good news. This is not about us taking steps towards God. This is about God taking steps towards us in our nakedness and in our shame status to say, let me clothe you. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, I'm done. He says, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Laying down your arms, surrendering, saying you are sorry, realizing that you have been on the wrong track and getting ready to start life over again from the ground floor, that is the only way out of our hole. The process of surrender, this moment, full speed astern, is what Christians call repentance. The invitation of God always is the same. To come to me, to trust me, trust me for who I am. So I'm done. And we are going to now respond I don't invite you into that response. So the worship team coming up, and why don't we all stand? It's a way for us to partake of communion, to eat the bread, to drink the cup, to remember that into the family that God calls us, all are welcomed. Doesn't matter who you are, no matter how confused you've been, no matter how broken you've been, no matter what type of alternate narrative you have imbibed or followed or listened to or allowed to shape your life, it's an invitation for all of us to receive a different narrative about what it means to be human.